0: would you pray with me? Father, as we have just sung, Lord, our our prayer is that you would speak to us in a mighty way, God, through your written word, through your Holy Spirit. God, as we come each week, Lord, we come hungry to know more about your word. God, to understand it, knowing, God, that the word of God is powerful It's living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And so, God, we submit ourselves to your word today. Lord, not here to attend a church for the sake of social acceptance, for the sake of just uh, finding mere community, Lord, but we come, Lord, to submit ourselves to what you would have to say about our lives and how we might love you and know you and grow to be more like you. We come to worship and glorify your son and give him praise. And so we come now and ask you to teach us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. If you turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 11. When we planted this church about five years ago, I was excited to look for a house in this neighborhood and... That was often dis- difficult because of the size of family that I have, to find a, a place that could uh, be su- suitable and accommodating to our family. Um, and when we found our house, we found it very quickly, and we were thankful. And I don't want to over-spiritualize things, but there were a couple things about this house that I said, you know, this a pastor needs to live here. Uh, one of them was that in my backyard... I had this huge, overwhelming set of muscadine vines growing in my backyard. The woman that lived there before us did co-op, and I'm not even sure what that means. It has something to do with farming. Um, And so she had a lot of different plants and things in our yard. And these muscadine vines had literally overgrown an entire pecan tree, a full mature pecan tree grown all the way to the top. They were also so large that, that when we looked at the house, there was a small shed in the back that those vines covered that we didn't even know was there when we purchased the house. That's how big they were. It took me months to tear those out because they had not they were not bearing fruit. But we, we know from Scripture that vines are used throughout Scripture as an illustration. And so I thought, you know, this is a great opportunity to me to— to to have this illustration in my backyard. But I didn't just have muscadine vines. I had a fig tree. I had a fig tree, and at that time I didn't realize that I had a barren fig tree. I had this great, massive fig tree that the little knowledge that I know about fig trees, all it did was kill the grass that was underneath it bore, it bore absolutely no fruit whatsoever, and I gave it time, and I, I tried to wait because I thought, you know, this would be cool to have a fig tree, but it, but it took me to really appreciate before I chopped that thing down and got it out of there that, that I had a barren fig tree. And what, what better way to, uh, to think about the home of a pastor having vines in his backyard and a barren fig tree to point us to the scriptures and the word of God? The barren fig tree is uh, one of the, the the parts of our passage this morning that Jesus encounters on his way through Jerusalem, on his way to the temple. And a lot of times we see this passage and it seems somewhat insignificant to us as readers. It seems like maybe Jesus is um, maybe just encountering uh, some some form of of plant that he wants to eat from and 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 then he makes his way when when he can't find any fruit but what we're going to see today is this barren fig tree that Jesus encounters and and actually curses upon is it has a great significance to not only his ministry but what he's going to do that same day in the temple because Jesus is reminding us and teaching us that on his way to the cross, this last week of earthly ministry, that he is teaching us and reminding us of his authority, of his humanity and his deity, and ultimately the sacrifice that he's going to make for us on the cross. And in this amazing Monday uh, of, of the Passion Week, we see Jesus do two things that are interconnected and related to his power and to his authority and to his mission. And so today, in the looking at Mark chapter 11, we're going to see the, the, the cursing of the fig tree and the cleansing of the temple. And we're going to look at how they're connected, and we're going to look and see what Jesus does in these moments to teach us about himself and to prepare us to evaluate our own lives As people who rather belong to him or who don't belong to him. So look with me in Mark chapter 11. We're going to read verses 12. Really, I'm going to start in verse 11 down to verse 19. And he entered Jerusalem. This is the end of the triumphal entry. He entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything... As it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. And on the following day, when he came from Bethany, he was hungry, and seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him because all the crowd were astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. Now as Jesus is entering the city on this Monday, he is, as I said, encountering this fig tree because he's, he's hungry. We have to remember Jesus is fully God and fully man. And so he hungers as we hunger. And we see his humanity there. We see and understand and respect the fact that that Jesus is genuinely hungry. We don't really know why he's hungry, but he's, he's traveling into a busy day in the city this Passover week. And there he is seeing this fig tree in the distance. And knowing the time of year that it is, he's hungry and prepared to eat. Now, fig trees were very common in Palestine. Very common during this day, and, and, and what they would do is, is early, uh, or excuse me, late spring and early summer, they would bear what's called early figs. These were edible figs, but they were small at the very least. See, figs really would, would bear their fruit, or as, as the, the writer Mark says, they would be in full harvest or full leaf in the right season in the fall Late summer, early fall. But Jesus approaches this fig tree knowing that early figs have, have begun to sprout and that they would be edible to eat. And the sign of that was that there, the fig leaves had sprouted and, and, and they were in, in full leaf as, as we read. So it's not uh, confusing to us for Jesus to see the fig tree, see the full leaves, and expecting on some form fruit hanging from this tree matter of fact in throughout the scriptures fig trees are used in different references in Matthew chapter 24 Jesus uses the fig tree as a way to tell time he says from the fig tree Matthew twenty-four thirty-two. from the fig tree learned its lesson as soon as its branches become tender and puts out leaves you know that summer is near So the the Palestinian Jew would see a fig tree and know when summer was coming when the leaves would would begin to bud and spread. Well, as Jesus arrives, he sees a, a fig tree in full leaf, except there's no fruit at all, no early figs. This is what we would call a an unfruitful tree, a barren tree. A tree that would not produce fruit, a tree that I had in my backyard. And that I can relate to. And so what does Jesus do? He says to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Now this is really important to our passage. And let me encourage us to, as we study scripture, to not necessarily just look at instances in the narrative and think of this as a descriptive way that Jesus was planning to eat on a certain day. We always have to look at the context surrounding it. And this particular day was, uh, was, was, was begun with Jesus cursing this fig tree, which later leads us to uh, see him cleansing the temple. And then Mark goes back to give a lesson that Jesus teaches his disciples about that cursed tree. Now, in Mark particularly, when we study his passage, there's a grammatical structure that Mark gives us called a Markin sandwich. And so Mark is con- including all of these things together. He's, he's teaching us about the fig tree, then he's taking us to the temple, and then he's going back to the fig tree. And so what Mark is doing for us as we study this passage, is he's saying, folks, the fig tree and the cursing of the temple are not uh, separate events. They are events that are connected together. That's how Mark teaches through the gospel. And so it's important for us to see why. Well, as we study scripture we have to think to ourselves, what do fig trees mean throughout the Bible? Is this fig tree represent something, or is it simply just a place for Jesus to get a meal? Well, if you study through your scriptures, and you understand the New and the Old Testament, you will know that two main plants are referenced throughout the Bible, the grapevine and the fig tree. And that this cursing of the fig tree then, represents something that the Jews had been familiar with throughout their life. Not only the fig tree representing a source of food, but that it symbolized the the Jewish people. Throughout the Old Testament, fig trees were referenced in in conjunction with vines as a way of God's judgment. In Hosea chapter 2, we're reminded of the judgment that comes upon the people of God. And Hosea says, I will lay waste to her vines and her fig trees. He says, these are my wages which my lovers have given me. I will make them a forest and the beasts of the field shall devour them. I will punish her, meaning Israel, for her feast days of the bales, which she burned offerings to them. And adorned herself with her ring and jewelry and went after her lovers and forgot me, declares the Lord. Hosea's message is a message of judgment, including the the imagery of the vines and the fig trees, a sense of a source of sustenance that are being destroyed. Why? Because the, the Jewish people turned to idolatry. They lived unholy lives. They were people... Like these fig trees and these vines that truly did not bear fruit. They were unfruitful. Jeremiah says the same, similar condemnation. God put a word in Jeremiah's mouth of condemnation to Israel. He says, I am, behold, bringing against you a nation from afar, O house of Israel. It's an enduring nation, it's an ancient nation, a nation whose language you do not know nor can you understand what they say. Their quiver is like an open tomb. They are all mighty warriors. They shall eat up your harvest and your food. They shall eat up your sons and daughters. They shall eat up your flocks and your herds. They shall eat up your vines and your fig trees, your fortified cities in which you trust. They shall beat down with the sword. A message of condemnation connected particularly to the idea of a fig tree. This is what the prophets would do in proclaiming judgment upon the people of Israel. And why? Because the people of Israel, as God's people, continually turned themselves away from following after God and they turned to idols. They allowed sin to enter their lives and they true, they, they manifested in themselves. That as God's people, as a nation, they did not bear fruit. They were unfruitful. And so Jesus' encounter this morning with the fig tree serves for us as a parable of unfruitfulness. We could say a parable of hypocrisy. A parable of a people who have continually shown that the majority of the people of the, uh, of the nation of Israel did not have a true faith in God. Yes, there were some who believed. Yes, there were some who obeyed and had faith in God's promises. But as the whole, they did not bear fruit in displaying the faith that they truly should have had. They were unfruitful. And so God was going to bring judgment. And so Jesus' cursing of the fig tree is merely symbolic as a parable of the cursing of the nation of Israel. Just like he had done, reminding them that the temple that they loved and the temple that they adored would be destroyed by foreign invaders. So Jesus is saying, you will be destroyed because you are unfruitful. And so consider with me this morning, church, what it means to bear fruit for Christ. If you could hold your place in Mark and turn back to Jeremiah chapter 17. Jeremiah chapter 17. You're probably very familiar with this poetic statement in in Jeremiah chapter 17 where Jesus is, or excuse me, where Jeremiah is Condemning the people, particularly the sins of Judah. Look in verse 5 of Jeremiah 17. Speaking of the sin of Judah, their idolatry, he says, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. What is that man, church? He is a cursed man. Why? Because he is like a shrub in the desert. He shall not see any good that would come. He shall dwell in parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. Now notice the comparison. Verse 7, blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its Roots by the stream. And this tree does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green, and it is not anxious in the time or the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. What's the comparison? The cursed man who puts his trust in flesh, who puts trust in himself. And he is accursed like the fig tree because he has no strength in himself to bear fruit, keeping with repentance. But the blessed man is the man who does what? He puts himself or his trust in a source of life outside of himself. The source of life is the tree reaching down by the waters and and sucking out the source of life from the stream. That source of life is not in himself. That source of life is outside of himself. And Jeremiah tells us that the source of life is the Lord. And what happens? That as he draws the strength and the life from that stream, he does not fear, he does not have anxiety, his leaves are strong, the leaves are green because the roots are strong. And the roots are strong because they're, they're, they're drawing the source of life from the Lord. That there's no anxiousness when a drought comes and there will never cease to bear fruit. Israel is represented in the fig tree because its source of life was not in the Lord. Its source of life was in the things of the world. They wanted to the kings of the world. They wanted to be like the other nations. In so many ways, they, they, they hoard themselves after the, the, the false gods of the pagan nations. Constantly receiving the blessings of God and yet going back in, 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 in spiritual adultery turning away from what God has done and taught them. And so Israel is represented in the fig tree. Why? Because on the outside it looked healthy, but it didn't bear fruit. It had full leaves, but no fruit. So Jesus, throughout his ministry, taught and revealed and and proclaimed such a people around him. The Pharisees were called whitewashed tombs. They were hypocrites. They were unfruitful. They looked beautiful on the outside, but inside they were full of dead man's bones. And so the message to those that Jesus taught and, and proclaimed the authority and the truth of God was this. He says, abide in me. And I in you. That as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you abide in me. I am the vine, he says, and you are the branches. And whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. From apart from me, you can do nothing. Church, that passage in John 15 that I just read and our passage in Jeremiah 17 tells us the same thing. For us to truly bear fruit as people of God, we have to belong to the Lord Jesus. He has to be the one by which we are trusting and we are depending as a source of salvation and life. We are not trusting in him just to escape hell. We are trusting in him day by day for sustenance for transformation in our lives. So are you abided or abiding and grafted to the Lord Jesus today? Are you abiding in him? Some people say, well, pastor, I don't know. How is it that I might know that I'm abiding in him? Is there some test that I can evaluate my life upon? And I would say, yes, it's called the fruit test and not the frenzy test. See, the frenzy test is that it's, it's where many people evaluate their life based upon their spiritual frenziedness. Well, I'm on this committee and I'm involved in this charity and I lead this Bible study. Or I'm super passionate about church, or I'm really excited about this new thing that I've that I've read on the internet, or or I've, I've really attached myself to this socio-religious position, or I really like this pastor because he's real edgy and he says a lot of things that offend the people of the world, and so I, I'm really passionate about those things. But that doesn't mean you're a Christian. That's just you're just caught up in the the frenzy and the the the, the religious culture of church. Doesn't mean that you know Christ. That's the frenzy test. And sadly, many people in the church today would evaluate themselves based upon their busyness in church, their religious activity. J.C. Ryle says, remember always that baptism, church membership, reception of the Lord's supper, and a diligent use of the outward forms of Christianity are not sufficient to save our souls They are leaves, nothing but leaves, and without fruit will add only condemnation. Church, he says, like the fig leaves of which Adam and Eve made themselves garments, they will not hide the nakedness of our souls from the eyes of an all-seeing God or give us boldness when we stand before him on the last day. No, we must, he says, bear fruit or be lost forever. Which is why the frenzy test will not last, only the fruit test. Are you bearing fruit? Are you bearing fruit? With the faith and the trust that you have, are you bearing fruit in your spiritual lives? Remember that the Lord God does not look on the outward appearance. He looks at the heart of a man. Therefore, real fruit in a regenerated person is a spirit-produced fruit such as love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. The Lord is not impressed that you come to church if you, are not, if you do not belong to him. No, he wants his people that belong to him to bear fruit and guess what? We will bear fruit. As Jeremiah says, we will not cease to bear fruit because it is a natural flow of a life uh, of the life that's within a tree to do what it was meant to do and that is to bear fruit. Which is the glory of God's sovereignty because we are all dead trees that God al- awakens and makes us alive and in doing so in Uh, infuses and indwells the spirit of God within us so that as we love and we grow in our understanding and knowledge of God we bear fruit it's just natural and so the fig tree is the parable of unfruitfulness that leads to the pronouncement of unfruitfulness at the temple says he came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple, and he began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. So there you have this, <clears throat> this scene where Jesus once again has showed up at Passover as a good, faithful, obedient Jewish man. It's estimated that there could be over a million people in Jerusalem at this time. And their their focus and their attention that week is not to go and see the sights of Jerusalem. The central focus point of Passover week is the temple. And here in this temple, the, the landscape of the temple is initially walking into the temple grounds is the court of the Gentiles. This space was reserved for everyone, Jew and Gentile. Its length was over five football fields long and three and a quarter football fields wide, over 35 acres just in the temple court of the Gentiles. Early in Jesus' ministry, at the very beginning, he goes to Jerusalem for that Passover. And what does he see? The entire sprawl of 35 acres of this court of Gentiles full of, of a marketplace. A place where vendors were selling animals. Money changers were exchanging currency. And we ask why is this So appalling to the Lord Jesus. Why is it that that he would be so upset? Well, it's because of what Jesus knows about this marketplace. See, this this marketplace in John chapter 2, when Jesus arrives at the temple at the beginning of his ministry, and now, once again, this last Passover that Jesus will engage in at the end of his public ministry he understands that this marketplace is referred to as the Bazaar of of Annas. Annas was one of the chief priests. And it was entitled after him because of the franchise, enterprise, commerce that went on there. See, Jesus knew that in this large marketplace, that there was a great commercializing of the temple precinct and worship. There was a system of of corruption that was going on. And here's how it happened. These pilgrims would travel year by year to, to Jerusalem for the Passover. And as they traveled there, Most likely, it was inconvenient to travel with animals to sacrifice at the temple. And so they would expect to go to Jerusalem and buy those animals as a sacrifice. And of course, the corrupted religious leaders knew that. And they would allow these things to go on in the court of the Gentiles. They would allow animals to be sold. But in allowing the animals to be sold, they realized that that they were going to profit greatly from these animals. And so they would charge the vendors who set up inside the court of the Gentiles a percentage of their sales. So they made a profit from the sales of the animals. On top of that, they knew that they only allowed a certain coinage to be given as an offering. And as pilgrims traveled from all over the, the, the nation and the area, they would travel with different currencies. So once again, the, the chief priests and the religious leaders would charge the money changers so that they could make a profit from the money changers. So the money changers would pay a fee to set up their booth and the, the animal exchange or, or sales would set up a booth and there they would be making money off of the sale of these animals and a sale of the money exchange but the corruption's even deeper. Because see, it was, it was only by the chief priests and the, and, and, and the religious leaders who determined which animals were acceptable to be sacrificed. And so guess what they did? They would only allow the animals bought from the temple grounds to be used for the sacrifice. Sounds pretty profitable, right? So now you have the chief priest triple-dipping a profit from the money changers, a profit from, the, chief, or from the, the sale of the animals. And then on top of that, people using that money that they exchanged to put into the dowry, into the temple tax that they were required to pay as they made their sacrifice. All of these things were an enterprise. It was an enterprise And so Jesus knew this corruption was going on, and he was enraged because of it. He was enraged because this area that was designed to be a place of thanksgiving for Gentiles to come and worship instead had become a thoroughfare. Back in Mark chapter 11, it says that not only was Jesus overturning the tables, Not only was Jesus driving out not only the buyers and the sellers, but he was not permitting people to pass through the temple. See, the temple was so large that they had put gates on all the different walls. And what people decided throughout the city was, hey, let's take a shortcut through the temple as I'm carrying these heavy objects. And so you literally had a thoroughfare that went through the court of the Gentiles that was supposed to be a place of worship, but instead had become an interstate of traffic as well as a bazaar of corruption. All of these things enraged the righteous anger of Jesus, and for good reason. Because the temple was supposed to be a place of confession of sin, not a concession of goods. It was supposed to be a place where God would meet with man, not where man would profit from God. And yet here we are, Jesus is enraged with this anger and for good reason because we, uh, we see his holy anger against unrighteousness and injustice. I mean, can you imagine he arrives upon the scene and he sees the temple that was supposed to be a, a place of worship. It was consecrated by God as a holy place and all he can see is the corruption that's going on. And so what does he do in a great act of his authority? Jesus demonstrates without resistance that he is truly the king and ruler of all. Think about this. Jesus, one man, literally clears out the court of the Gentiles. 35 acres, he is clearing it out, and not one person resists him. Not a single temple guard comes to arrest him or stands in his way, or distracts him from his purpose. Not a single person. And so in this great act in the last week of Jesus' life, we see this humble Lord almost transition to this authoritative, ruling king who stands against the unholiness of this world. And he's resisting them because the temple was this great place for holiness. It was where the, where the Lord dwelt. And it was a future foreshadowing of the judgment that God would have upon fruitless and faithless people. Israel as a nation was being rejected, although a remnant would put their trust in Christ, but Jesus is, is, one reason he's so enraged in this unholiness is because this was the court of the Gentiles. Remember that in Scripture, the, the Jewish people, as God's people, were supposed to be a light to the nations. And Gentiles that wanted to, to come and to believe in God, the God of Israel and, and worship and, and offer their sacrifices were met with commotion. And so Jesus is enraged because he is, is in essence, fighting for the the right for Gentiles to worship him as uh, as he has been sent to accomplish. That Jesus would be the redeemer of not just Jews who had faith in him, but Gentiles as well. And so he quotes from a famous passage in Isaiah 56. And in Isaiah 56... The passage is about foreigners who come to the Lord. It's about foreigners who come and trust in the Lord. Isaiah 56 says, Blessed is the man who does this and the son of man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it, and keeps his hand from doing any evil. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, To the eunuch who keeps my Sabbath, who chose the things that please me and hold fast to my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, to minister to him to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants everyone who keeps the sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant these i will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer i mean this is the lord saying that that he is going to draw foreigners to himself And church, this is significant to the mission of Jesus because this is what he came to do. Jew and Gentile, Scythian and Barbarian, we're all one in Christ, right? It doesn't matter what nation we belong to, what culture we grew up in, we all have an opportunity to put our faith in Christ and the Lord Jesus invites us to that. The very temple itself was built to communicate that. Can you imagine the temple being built without a court for the Gentiles? What message does that promote? But no, there was a place for foreigners to come in and worship. It would be a place that we would worship if we were there. And so Jesus comes, and, he, and, and with this holy righteousness he, he, and, and authority, he casts these people out without resistance in full authority because he's the king and the Lord of all. And he quotes from Isaiah 56. It is, not, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. But you've made it a den of robbers. And then verse 18 says, the chief priests and the scribes heard it. And were seeking a way to destroy him for they feared him. Because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. They couldn't do anything about it. And why was Jesus judging the temple? Why was he casting them out? It was a judgment upon their unholiness and their unfruitfulness. It was a pronouncement that although they possessed the temple, they didn't deserve the temple. Although they had a place to worship, they didn't truly belong or desire to worship. And ultimately, Jesus teaches us at the end of his ministry that it's truly he that is the temple. That the building itself and the place where God dwelt only served as a shadow of the things to come. That Jesus was God in the flesh. That as Jesus was on the earth, he was the walking temple. God in the flesh dwelling among men. That's what Jesus said in John 2, on his first visit to the, t- to the temple. He says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And the, G- G- the Jews said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you'll raise it up in three days? And we're told that he was speaking about the temple of his body. Jesus taught us that this temple, his body was destroyed upon the cross and raised back from death. It was his body that's the true temple, the place of God, full of glory and majesty. And when we come to faith in Christ, when we believe in him and, and he regenerates us and makes us alive, we are given his spirit which dwells in us and our place becomes the place of God. We become as temples to the living God. And so the challenge for us this morning is to consider the unfruitful tree and the condemnation that it faced. To consider the unfruitful temple and the people within it. And instead, look into our lives and say, are we unfruitful and deserving of condemnation? Do we truly belong to Christ? Does our life bear fruit? And if so, do we as people who possess the Living God, instill invite unholiness into our lives? Are we living as people yoked to unholiness? Friend, if you're someone this morning that can't see evidence of fruit in your life, let me encourage you this morning that there is no stream of water that will bear fruit for you outside of God. There will be nothing spiritually that you can do good in yourselves besides trusting in the Lord Jesus fully for salvation and your regeneration. Only when you are made new will you bear true fruit that is honoring to the Lord. But if you belong to him, you and I, we are still susceptible to sin. We're still susceptible to the temptations of this world. And if we are the temple of the living God, as Paul states, let me remind us that we, just as Jesus, must be violent against the unholiness in our life. We must rage against allowing unholiness to sneak its way slowly and subtly into our relationship with Christ. I think over time, I can imagine the marketplace in the court of the Gentiles just growing and expanding. As these priests began to see how lucrative of an enterprise it could be, Oh, man, let's add a couple more vendors. Let's, 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 let's find another way to profit from this enterprise. And that's exactly what believers do with sin. Slowly, sin enters our life. And if we don't fight against it, if we don't turn away from it, it continues to grow. Like this marketplace that Jesus just, uh, clears out of the temple. Paul commands the church in the Corinth, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Bilal? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, as God says. I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst. Be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me. Church, we are called this morning to consider our relationship with Christ and where and how we might have invited unholiness into our lives. Unholiness that that destroys and corrupts us. And even as Christians, we are susceptible to this. We are not perfect until Christ comes again. And so we must be careful to continually fight against the sin that fights against us. That we must fight against it individually. We must fight against it as a church. That we must do as God commanded the Old Testament Jews to, to separate from it. To go out from their midst. Don't flirt with it, but flee. You know, these last two years of The Southern Baptist Convention, which we've been affiliated with, it's been very difficult as a convention. Over 700 abused victims have come forward that were abused by religious leaders in Southern Baptist churches. And these are just the victims that we know about. Pastors and youth pastors and deacons I can only imagine the countless more who have not spoken out against abuses out of fear. And what's their complaint? That they were violated and abused in a church by the leaders that they were supposed to be cared for and shepherded and loved by and protected. One of the worst stories I heard from the convention this year, and I'll be discreet, is a woman who went to her pastor to report abuse from her youth pastor. The youth pastor was fired and that pastor took up the abuse of that woman. Continued on in the church. And the SVC has set policies and amendments, and, and they're, they're striving to reconcile just countless amounts of abuse from religious leaders. And we can set policies and we can take all this the, the, follow guidelines and do everything we can. But folks, the, the truth is, is this started in the hearts of men that were pastoring, that gave in to temptations of their flesh. They invited in the crooked merchants and promoted the commercializing of their temple. They they opened the door for prostitutes in their mind, and they lost their love for Christ and their wives. These started in the human heart, and the call this morning is to turn from unholiness in your lives and to be separate. For we know that the Lord Jesus Christ came and died; He demonstrated a power in His resurrection that we know helps us overcome sin. That He defeated sin for us, so that these things do not—they uh, are no longer a bondage or or hold us over as our masters. And that power is so great, guided by the Spirit, that we can overcome sin. But we must search our hearts and ask ourselves if we are truly regenerated and trusting in Christ. And if not, we should believe today. But if we've believed, if we've trusted in Christ, understand that He goes forward before us in battle. He died on the cross to defeat sin and death, to provide the forgiveness of sin so that we could be free. Now does it leave the church to sit back and, let, um, and, and not feel the responsibility and the weight of striving and, and, and fighting against sin? And yet we do that trusting in God's power. Striving to live holy lives because Christ has made us holy in Him for the sake of His glory. I want to close with a a hymn. I don't I don't know if we've sung this hymn before here. It's a good one. It's called "Lead On." Oh, uh, "Lead On, O King Eternal." The day of March has come. Henceforth, in fields of conquest, your tents shall be our home. Through days of preparation, your grace has made us strong. And now, O King Eternal, we lift our battle song. Lead on, O King Eternal, till sin's fierce war shall cease. And holiness shall whisper the sweet amen of peace. For not with swords, loud clashing, or roll of stirring drums, with deeds of love and mercy, we wait till Jesus come. Lead on, O King Eternal. We follow not with fears, for gladness breaks like morning where your face appears. Your cross is lifted over us. We journey in its light. The crown awaits the conquest. Lead on, O God of might. Father, we pray this morning, God, that through the power of your spirit and through the authority of your word, God, that you would change hearts this morning for your glory. Whether it's dead hearts, God, that don't know you. God, would you awaken new hearts to life? Would you open eyes and give faith to see you as the true and righteous king who alone can save Father may we see the power and the might that you have demonstrated in your death and resurrection so that we don't have to fear sin we don't have to fear its grip upon us and we can know Christ that you have overcome and that you overcome for us And Lord, as a church, as your people, God, may we strive and fight and battle and war against sin day by day. For as the one who has made us holy in the eyes of God, may we strive for holiness, fighting against the flesh that we still wage war with until you come again, Jesus. God, may we persevere and be faithful, trusting in you, Lord, Amen.